0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware.
1: Sheriff,
2: you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square.
0: Your
1: lemon
0: squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking feminist t-shirts. We're talking bisexual lighting. And we're talking new wave acapella songs.
2: And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking if you aren't a cunty slut and you're not a bitchy tease, then what are you, Joe? (laughs) apparently you are this movie oh my god (laughs) (laughs) everyone we are discussing jennifer reeder's knives and skin uh, Mm a a film that's a bit uh, towing that genre honestly joe this was reminding me a lot of boys in the trees
0: Okay, yeah, I've seen so many different comparisons. Some people are like, oh, it's a more female oriented Donnie Darko. Oh, it's kind of like the musical parts of Magnolia, you know, oh, it's kind of like American
2: Beauty for teenage girls. And I'm like, yes to all of that. Sure, sure, sure. But you know what? Why don't we bring in a guest to help us uh, parse through what is, I'm going to say, is an admittedly challenging film. Um, I had Mm -hmm. to watch this twice to... I'm not even going to say fully grasp it because I don't think I fully grasped it.
0: (laughs) No, probably not. Yeah.
2: Okay, but everyone, let's bring her in. So she is one of the assistant editors at the Mary Sue, a feminist website that is a geek girl's guide to the universe. She is also the co-host of It's Lit, a PBS series of video essays about our favorite books and why we love to read. Please welcome Princess Weeks.
3: Hi, thank you so much for picking such a hearty stew as my introduction. (laughs) Uh, Because I was like, well, they must really trust me to give me such deep uh, topic this deep
2: story so thank you for this well thank you for coming in joe this is your fault this is my fault yes
3: (laughs) (laughs) i forgive you. you you're forgiven
0: well here's the thing so i saw this film when it first came out in 2019 i reviewed it for bloody disgusting and i remember thinking immediately i'm the wrong person to review this movie because it's so steeped in like depictions of teen girls and like coming of age and you know over time I was like oh actually right I have a YA podcast so maybe I'm not (laughs) the worst fit but this is not a conventional film and the first time I watched it that was the piece I really struggled with like my brain kept trying to force a streamlined narrative onto this Mm -hmm. and this movie has that in parts but it's really more interested I would say as a bit of a character study.
3: I agree. I I think like it reminded me in certain ways of the virgin suicides but like in reverse of like very Mm -hmm. much like this town very deeply impacted by this like traumatic experience that is on the one hand sadly very typical Mm -hmm. but is also like can be mythologized and transformed into something completely different.
2: Yes. I can't believe I didn't think about the virgin suicides, but yeah...
3: I'm on that Sofia Coppola
2: right now. So I think that's a much better comparison than what I was offering. Um, but yeah, this movie, um, I will confess. So walking into this, so I, I missed this at Fantastic Fest when it screened back in 2019. I was really intrigued because the word musical is in the plot description. So I was mm-hmm. like, "Ooh, that's that's a me." That's movie. a you thing. <laughs> but it's not the time. As we learned in our uh, episode on the lure, there are a couple different types of musicals, and one of right. them is just what this is, which is not my favorite it Mm -hmm. i will say that i was expecting this movie to be one of those where i was like okay when am i going to lose track of what's happening because joe you had kind of described it as lynchian to me and i was like okay that just to me means it's going to be confusing like i'm not going to know what's (laughs) going on and i was happy to say that i didn't have that feeling but this movie is very much yeah a vibe like i was feeling a lot during this movie if not Mm -hmm. altogether
0: understanding or yeah
2: yeah like i wasn't always i will confess this had a bit of trouble keeping my attention so i did have to watch it a second time today um there's also a lot of characters in this movie <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah and it's not always clear which of them are important like to be clear i i have seen people describe this as lynchin and i I almost resent it because i think people just use lynchian as a catch-all term whenever something is kind of like mildly confusing or visually interesting (laughs) and i'm like if you're going to say that this is lynchian be specific this is like twin peaks right which starts with a dead girl and then explores its impact on all of the townspeople and they're all just a little bit kooky because that's that's how i take this as a lynchian text but i was clearly not very clear when i said
2: that to you no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean that to be a call out. By the way, <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, like, I always remind people that, like, technically Riverdale is Lynchian. It's like yes, it's definitely exactly. baby's first to peak. So it's like you gotta you gotta be specific, if only because, like, I think when I started watching it, like, I saw Knives and Skin, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, it's like, is it gonna be like kind of Heather's-y? Is mm-hmm. it gonna right. be kind of jawbreakery? Is it gonna right. have like? But then I think as I as I was kind of writing my notes about it, I was like, it definitely. Felt like the Virgin Suicides in the sense that like it's mythologizing this one woman, this one young right. girl, and like what that means to the people around it. Except in this case, it's other young girls growing up in this neighborhood, not like some boys who are like we fetishize these mm-hmm. these gr- these girls when we were like young and Catholic um,
2: and like <laughs> keep that in your back pocket. But actually, so because w- w- I, I want to call this slice of life, would y'all call mm. this that? Hmm.
3: Uh, it's got slices of life i think i think (laughs) i think it has elements of that for sure
2: i think because for me and this may maybe how i how i try to rationalize movies that are like this in my mind where i'm like if there's not a plot meaning we're not there's no beginning middle and end there's no like real conflict to solve or at least not one that the movie is interested in solving so it's like we're Hmm. just watching these people exist um Mm -hmm. over the course of uh, a couple weeks yeah question mark time is indeterminate in the film
0: for sure
3: no i i think that makes sense i i think sometimes it's like because me as an anime kid i'm like but nobody like just (laughs) had a 30 minute episode about just music or whatever but yeah (laughs) (laughs) where was the baking that i remember well there was a cake so i i definitely see what you're talking about well, <laughs>
2: why don't we okay, so yeah, let, let's start with the genesis of this film. So again, th- this is writer director Jennifer Reeder. Um, and if y'all don't know her, um, she's done a ton of short films. But she did do uh, she wrote and directed the wraparound segment in last year's VHS 94. Mm-hmm. So Um, Knives and Skin was kind of born out of the many, many short films that Reader has made over the past 10 years, Uh, specifically two shorts called A Million Miles Away and Blood Below the Sun, which if you are curious, um, both of them are available for free and public on Reader's Vimeo page. So go search for that. Nice. She's made many of the short films about the experiences of girls and women, and specifically teen girls who were empowered and empowering, as well as adult women who were experiencing a kind of second coming of age. And I do think we see both, all of that in this film. Definitely. Yeah. Something else she was looking at was an American independent film from 1986 called River's Edge. And this starred, uh, Crispin Glover oh, and that Keanu That one's so Reeves. fucking good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar, this is a film that follows a group of teenagers, uh, boys, in a Northern California town who are forced to deal with their friend's murder of his girlfriend and the subsequent disposal of her body. Hmm. Now... I mentioned that movie because Reader is on record saying that the missing girl trope is problematic, specifically within genre films, because typically this trope is used as a catalyst for male stories of (laughs) (laughs) self-discovery. Princess, you called it right off the top.
3: (laughs) I am so good at this. (laughs)
2: Now, she didn't want to avoid what she had found problematic about so many horror and thriller films that use this trope. Uh, She wanted to embrace it, work with it, and try and rethink it. So from the beginning, there was always a missing or dead girl, but she had to try to figure out how to continue to give her as an object agency, which, in her opinion, is why it's important that she wasn't murdered, because also she would have had to deal with that story in an already crowded runtime, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she wanted to make a film that was about female empowerment or even a feminist film that dealt with the trope of this missing girl. And I do want to sideline just for a second. Um, So there is another film, and Joe, I've brought this up on the podcast before. It is Karen Moncrief's 2006 film The Dead Girl, which is literally about a girl, uh, Brittany Murphy, whose body is found on the side of the road. But rather than do this kind of narrative approach to it, it does a vignette set. So, you know, we get, oh, the the, the stranger, Tony Collette, finds the body. Rose Burns, a mm-hmm. sister who thinks that the body is her sister. Marsha Gay Harden thinks it's her daughter. Brittany Murphy, Carrie Washington, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if you're looking for other feminist takes on this trope, I would highly recommend that film. Interesting. Anyway.
3: <laughs> i'm like every time you mention the film i'm like yeah let me just add this to my my wish list <laughs> where's heard. my
2: watch list and, and we're adding it <laughs> i feel compelled to always recommend it because a no one knows about it and the cast alone i mean mm-hmm. my god <laughs> there
3: there is nothing like going on to like a really great movie podcast and just being like all right tell me anything that will make me one up everyone else that i know <laughs>
2: So I'm like, river's edge
3: ordered got it
2: there you go oh, oh. God, it's so good Make sure it's the dead girl and not dead girl.
3: Yeah, I I literally, I typed it in and it was like, I love Tony Collette. I'm like, all right.
2: There you go. Yeah. (laughs) The
0: other one is a horrible rape revenge film, which is a good film, but just horrible to try to get through.
2: Yeah, that would be like when they showed what, like Saw 3D instead of Toy Story 3 in one of those screenings.
3: (laughs) Oh, God, what a day.
2: (laughs) You know what? Anyone could make a mistake like that. Who hasn't? <laughs> Who amongst us <laughs> Who among
0: has us not? has not?
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, the cast in uh, Knives and Skin, though, is not full of names. And that's actually because Reader got pretty much all of them from a very thriving theater community in Chicago. So oh, the, yeah. looking at a lot of their filmographies, they've been like, you know, the the security guard in XTV show for one episode, like those kind of uh, actors. Mm hmm. When it comes to the film's style, Reader was looking at this film as related to theater. Uh, Reader herself went to art school instead of film school. And I think that's pretty apparent when you watch Mm -hmm. this movie.
0: Well, you said that in a very weird way, like, oh, this isn't a Mm. very well-made film. No, But I would say it's more like the artistic choices are more representative of an art school as opposed to like a traditionally classical filmmaking mode.
2: I'll work on my tone. I meant more so, like, the shot compositions are very, like, artsy looking. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: Uh, To pull in from my little, my smart little oeuvre, there (laughs) are parts of it that did kind of remind me of, like, one of my more recent obsessions, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock.
1: Mm -hmm. Because it's, like,
3: especially the idea of, like, other girls being saturated with this madness that comes Mm -hmm. from... Not having the language or knowledge to communicate what has happened to you. I definitely like when everyone's finding Carolyn, I'm like, it reminded me so much of like when people are trying to find Miranda and they're all like, Miranda, where are you?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And that film to me is sort of. It's kind of like the one of the ultimate new wave dead girl movies, because you never see the girls die. You don't know what happened to them. They're just missing. Mm -hmm. And like, just like I think the tagline for this movie is like Caroline is missing. Everyone else is lost. And to me, that is so uh, apt because that's kind of how it is in Picnic and Hanging Rock. Like these girls are missing, but everyone else becomes slowly consumed with trying to figure out the mystery that they lose themselves in everything else.
1: -hmm. Yeah,
2: I think that's the thing too, right? Like, if you walk into this movie and you're like, I've seen it described as a neo noir too, which again, I'm like, it doesn't really fit that mold. But if you walk in expecting a murder mystery or uh, a kidnapped or killed Caroline, no, that's not what's going to be a (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I will co sign on your recommendation, Princess, though. Uh, Folks, we will do Picnic at Hanging Rock one day because I fucking love that movie. It's just, yeah, it's It's a lot. It's also a mood and a vibe.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I've seen the mini series that, um, oh my God. It's Natalie Dormer, right? Natalie Dormer. Yeah, I've seen that, but I haven't seen the original film.
3: Just you wait.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: I, threw, I went through a period where I watched the movie, read the book, and watched the miniseries in like two weeks. Oh my like, God. Oh. I,
2: was, wow. I
3: was about to go to Australia. I was just so I was like I need to know <laughs> I need to go see Miranda. I have to just go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but were you okay is the question mark.
3: I, I was more like, I don't know if I was okay, but I was just enthralled. Like, I right. I love a story where there is, I love a mystery where there is, the point is not the conclusion. Right. You know, like, mm-hmm. where you are just trying to figure out how this impact everything. And that's totally what Picnic at Hanging Rock is. It is just the journey yep. of of madness between all of these young women who are, you know, just kids trying to figure out stuff. I think that's the most coming of age thing that there is. I mean, that's why people love the body and all mm-hmm. those other like coming of age slash thriller slash horror element stories because there is something inherently cruel about as you get older, knowing how many things can go out of your control and that can lead to your death, especially as a young girl or anyone right. socialized female.
2: And I will say, though, even readers, she, I saw a soundbite from her where she was like, I don't even know if I would call this coming of age, because that's why I have the mothers in this film who were mm-hmm. also going through. I wasn't mm-hmm. growing pains, the term she said, but it's like, well, you never really come of age. You're constantly growing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Man, I remember the hardest lesson I ever
0: learned. I went home for the holidays and my mom and I would hang out in the kitchen as she was like making food and I would chat with her and keep her company. And at one point I was just like, mom tell me when you figured life out like when did things start to feel like you were comfortable or you knew what to expect and she just looked at me dead in the eyes and was like what the fuck are you talking about i still have no idea what is going on and it was crushing like absolutely soul destroying oh my god there is
3: nothing more heartbreaking than realizing that oh this is just another human
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Oh my mom's a real person (laughs) Uh, Honestly yeah The the true coming of age is when you realize that your parents Are not perfect Yeah Mm, Yeah. that's a hard one too
3: But we can still blame them for the childhood Trauma though so shout out to them Oh of (laughs) course You're not getting out of that. Just go to your own therapy, parents, wanting my sympathies. Oh, my
2: God. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. So oftentimes in this movie, we just have this, you know, still frame with people moving through the frame in a way that one would either, like, stage as a theater movement or Hmm. something like that, as opposed to just cutting all the time to deal with the action. So uh, Reader looked at American art photographers Todd Hito and Gregory Crudson, the latter of which primarily photographs tableaus. For Carolyn, though, they looked at a British figurative painter named Jenny Seville, uh, who is known for her large scale painted depictions of nude women. Uh, she has been credited with originating a new and challenging method of painting the female nude and reinventing figure painting for contemporary art. And <clears throat> I was a little confused by this statement because and granted, I didn't look at I didn't look at any of Seville's work, but I don't think we get enough of Carolyn in this film to see what the, these inspirations kind of look like.
0: Oh really? You you don't think it's the scenes where we see the body sort of moving on of its own accord, uh, or like maybe being so. propped up against a tree and that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, I guess I mean, I guess yes. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking of like scenes. <laughs>
3: Technically, yes, but I didn't hit for you.
2: I'm, i I'm thinking of like you know scenes that are devoted to Carolyn rather than fleeting shots of her corpse interspersed between other scenes. But yes, you're you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's tricky, right? Because I've seen people say, well, there is no actual dead body in this movie because a she seems to not actually be dead, right? Like she's moving of her own accord, even though she clearly is not alive anymore. And I'm like, okay, you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. But also b people say, you know, well, she's she's more of as you said princess the body right like she's not an actual character because we don't really get to know anything about her and i think that is a bit closer to the truth but i would argue carolyn is still very much an important figure in this film
3: i think sometimes when we talk about the dead girl trope i think what makes it problematic is the fetishization of like the body and the element so i think that because we get like she's an inciting incident Mm -hmm. and I think that can be okay in a film where the other people processing this inciting incidents are mostly other uh, like her her family or you know her mother her Mm -hmm. her friends I think that is the human element and I think that it's not always the same it's it's very like depends on the context but I think in this particular film that it works fine to me i wasn't like oh another dead girl movie because i felt like well this isn't just about like a bunch of sad guys trying to her. Mm-hmm. and i think that is the context which makes the trope problematic not necessarily just a woman or a young girl dying very suddenly well
2: speaking right. of fetishization of dead bodies maybe you actually should also watch 2008's dead girl <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> Um, just, you know, uh, uh, prepare yourself. Um.
3: <laughs> you know, I I'll, like I've been in such a hole of like reading, watching so many weird movies just to like get context. Mm-hmm. So like, if you tell me to do it, I'll do it. So I mean, look, oh, Dead boy. Girls
2: is about these two guys that find a essentially a zombie corpse tied into the basement of this factory and they proceed to rape her over and over and over.
3: Oh, Jesus. Okay, mm-hmm. well, it's mm-hmm. a
2: lot. It's a lot, but it's good. But I would not recommend it just to anyone. <laughs> no.
3: All right, I'm going to put that lower on the list, but I will, (laughs) but I am interested because I don't feel like you would just recommend it to me all Mm -hmm. higgledy-piggledy.
0: There's great conversation that comes out of it, but it is, yeah, it's one of those things where you watch it and you think, I maybe need to take a shower and I don't trust a single fucking man.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. A Tuesday.
2: (laughs) 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 Must be Tuesday. Um, so going into the style, obviously there's a lot of neon lighting in this film. So, um, for lighting, the reader was going after Italian horror films, not just Argento, but just Giallo in general. And just like, you know, the, uh, the entire field of Italian horror. Mm-hmm. She does consider this film genre adjacent, while not outright horror. Um, she does think that the horror comes from the reality of being a young woman in this world and being surrounded by adults who have no interest in respecting consent or respecting your boundaries.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Now... Tying into this plot, obviously, she doesn't waste time on exposition or explanations, which is intentional. Um, Everything you see in the final cut of this film was deeply scripted. Um, There were no happy accidents in in the script writing process. Uh, When she was writing it, she actually wouldn't move on to another scene unless it felt like the one she was working on had enough information to do what it needed to do in terms of propelling the plot or a character arc forward. But That being said, she tried to fill in a lot of this exposition with visual language or atmosphere. So, again, you're supposed to, like, you know, get the vibe and use that to fill in the blanks for you. Mm. Mm -hmm.
3: I I really dig that, personally. Mm
2: -hmm. I think it's a film that would reward repeat viewings. Mm
3: -hmm. And as someone who loves science fiction, I think of, like, some of my favorite sci-fi novels are the one that's like okay it's just we're gonna drop you in here we'll explain stuff but we'll just kind of like go on the just keep walking and we'll get we'll get to the exposition
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have had an interesting interview with reader this was actually while she was prepping to make the movie so she was talking a bit about her shorts and then her approach to making the feature but she does talk about how artfulness and wonder is part of her process. So this is a question about, like, how she uses things like text messaging and Mm -hmm. subtitles and other things like that. So she says, artfulness and wonder is part of my process. I'm not required to stay within the realm of in real life. So I don't. Plus, revealing secrets to the audience brings them into the story closer to the characters. My films are about intimacy and the reveal that happens in text sequences, which is intimate without being sexual or graphic. And... You know, I think we can see a lot of that in this. It's like you were talking about Trace with the shot composition and the way that the camera moves, but it's also in like what does get said and what doesn't get said. Because I can imagine people coming into this and feeling very confronted by the kind of abruptness or even like these people don't speak in ways that's naturalistic or representative of real life, even though a lot of the Shots themselves look like okay. We could just be following teenagers on an average day in high
2: school. Mm-hmm. So, do y'all consider this film to be a heightened reality? I think so.
3: In certain ways, yeah.
2: It feels
0: familiar, but then it also feels a world away from our lived experience,
2: right? Yeah, like there's nothing so outlandish where I was like, "Well, wait, th- that that couldn't actually happen." Well, maybe mm-hmm. the vagina, like storage passing thing like maybe that was a I was like wait how do they fit it all in there but um there was nothing in here that I was like wait that doesn't that wouldn't happen in the real world
3: yeah I think it's I think it's the moments where you just feel like reality tipping to the other side like when the 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 shirt was talking like that was one of the moments where i was just like ah right it's this kind of movie see Mm -hmm. but even then i
2: was like well she's also like super depressed and probably yeah she's dealing (laughs) with mental illness and yeah yeah, (laughs) she might be on drugs or something as well we don't know well and speaking of that, so I did want to point out, Reader ha- has also said that when she was doing the press tour for this movie, um, the film that played the biggest part in influencing most of her work is Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, to the point where mm, uh,
1: when favorites. she was
2: do- talking about like in 2019, she was like, oh, I would just love to do a remake of Rebecca, which, as we all know, we did get uh, from nice. Ben Wheatley, and it was not very good. Um, yeah
0: if folks want to hear our thoughts terrible. about that we do have a Patreon episode on it but uh, it's a lot of us sighing
3: I will literally just I'll join just to hear that because I i have never felt so disappointed mm-hmm. by something right? as I did when I saw that new Rebecca how do you how How dare they mm-hmm. <laughs> just how dare they I really like well,
0: I'm especially not a purist queer people, right? that yeah. show was an affront yeah
3: it's like you really like Joan and Fontaine did not get gaslit and nagged into oblivion by Laurence Olivier for this disrespect.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and like, that. I even like I even like the miniseries with Charles Dance and Diana <gasps> Rigg and Amelia oh, Fox. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> so good.
3: <laughs> so I'm just sitting here like you couldn't even give me that.
2: Mm-hmm. See, that's so funny, Princess. So you talking about doing all your uh, your your Australia homework with *Picnic on Hanging Rock*? When we co- when we were going to cover the remake of *Rebecca*, we did cover the Hitchcock's original on our main feed. But I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I, here's the Charles Dance one. Le- sure, let me watch all three hours of that." <laughs> yeah,
3: you had to. You had no choice. It's a choice. good time. It was, yes. and also like I I have to admit, Charles Dance is like one of those men from you i'm like i don't know what it is about him but he could get it so it was just kind of like right. seeing him in that role i'm like yes
2: see and i'm just like <laughs> diana rig being a bitch sure sign me up
3: also great i mean <laughs> i i grew up with her so that was just such a great mm-hmm. like uh Mrs. Peel, rest in power, Uh, Queen. Yes,
0: yes.
2: Okay, but wait. So, Trace, how does Rebecca figure into Knives and Skin then? Well, so specifically, she loved the way that Hitchcock was a visual storyteller in that film. And I think it's because, and again, if you go back and listen to our episode, he couldn't put a lot of explicit sexuality on screen right. because you okay. know it, the, the Hayes code so he had to do a lot of sneaky stuff I and mean, again thinking about like when we talked about the lingerie and rebecca, rebecca um it's just the way he's telling the story was more of an artist than that of a filmmaker in reader's mind and so that's kind of stuck with her throughout this process right okay okay So yeah, uh, Knives and Skid did the festival circuit throughout all of 2019, premiering at the Berlin International Film Festival on February 9th, uh, before having its American premiere at Tribeca on April 26th. Uh, It got a VOD release at the very end of the year on December 6th. Uh, Reviews are uh, leaning positive. Uh, We've got a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of (laughs) 6.3 out of 10.
3: (laughs) I'm a child, I apologize.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. You said what everyone else was thinking. I'm just glad I didn't have to do it. And uh, Letterboxd users have awarded it a 5.6 out of 10. And I think that's... Because I, I do think this is a polarizing film and where you're seeing yeah. it in the scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not going to be for everybody. For no. Sure.
3: And and that's fine. I think, like, I was... I've been going back and I've been re-watching for this month, watching a horror movie every single day, Oof. and I found myself watching a lot of Mario Bava movies. And I'm just like... Bye. or beva i'll ask my girlfriend how to pronounce it because she's actually <laughs> italian um and i'm just like i really enjoy the variety of it like horror doesn't have to be one thing and i like no. seeing all the different kinds of horror that can come out of any person's mind especially because i did you know i love to do my little research and the director jennifer she really is interested in sort of like this middle american working mm-hmm. class ennui and right. how it can be impacted by these traumas but in a heightened way and i Mm -hmm. think that's an always very interesting place to start i mean whenever ari aster says that he's doing that we're all like yes king so it's like so it's (laughs) like let's let's have space for that to look in different ways and maybe not as polished maybe a little bit more auteur theory a little bit more like new wave because Mm -hmm. i think like i love picnic at hanging a rock it is a classic but i can't imagine showing that to the same crowd of people that like hereditary or the conjuring it's just a different kind of animal
0: right yeah you got to pick and choose sometimes right like Mm -hmm. we've talked about how oh i'm not in the mood to watch this and it's like there's a reason for that because certain films will give certain vibes there for certain times and admittedly for certain people like there's going to be a bunch of people who try to watch this because they want to listen to the episode and it may just not be for them so That's fine. But maybe a bunch of people will say, this wasn't on my radar. Checked it out. I really connected with it. Cool. I want to check out more Jennifer Reeder films.
2: Yeah, I think I think you said something uh, to, uh, like this, Joe, where you were like, it's not a film that I love, but it's something I can definitely appreciate. And yes, I, I feel similarly, where I'm like, I, I, I am very interested in many parts of this film, but I can't mm-hmm. quite say that it fully comes together as a whole by the time the credits roll.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I admire fair. this film deeply, but yes. I also don't want to watch it regularly. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. in, in a weird way, it reminds me on a certain level of how I feel about Jennifer's body. Like, I'm so happy it exists. Mm. I think it definitely did not get fully realized by the audience it was trying to meet at every turn. There right. are things about it that I don't love and I think have just aged poorly and I that sure. I feel like are clumsy. But I like seeing people get the opportunity to be that clumsy and still have a fun vision at the end of it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's for all the mess that it does have, I think the whole of it is good. And it's very rare to have something like that, you know?
2: That's so interesting, because that's actually how I feel about Raw. Like, that's a movie where I'm like, I I appreciate Mm -hmm. it, I admire what it's doing, it just, it's not really, it it doesn't connect with me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have those films, and part
0: of it is, When we feel like we're on the outside looking in, and everyone else is having the best party, just enjoying this movie, and we're like, oh, I don't feel that way. How come I don't feel that way? Am I broken? Is it the movie? What's going on? Yeah. It's like, yeah, we don't have to like everything, and sometimes it's like, give it 10 years. Maybe you'll come around to
2: appreciate it. But I... think to even like even as critics as podcasters as journalists like it's there's an important distinction between saying that isn't a good movie or mm-hmm. that is not a movie that's for me yeah right so yeah like i
0: hated having to give this film a score in my bloody review because right. i think i gave it like a two or a two and a half because partially i was thinking well the average bloody reader is not going to no. probably <laughs> get much out of this but also it's not really meeting all of the criteria for a conventional horror film. And that's how I was sort of approaching the review. But I walked away feeling like I failed the film because I didn't know if I was actually being fair. Like, I don't think that this is a movie where you just casually give it like two out of five, three out of five. It's a film that I think merits deeper conversation because there's a lot going on. Well, even simultaneously, you watch it and you're like, okay it's like a couple of kids having some weird experiences for a week it's a confounding film in that way yeah
3: no i think that's such an apt point and i think as someone who also at times has had to review films, like i had to just recently write a review for black adam and it was so mm. weird to discuss that film because we've had so many superhero movies and like there's how i feel about it in this moment but i don't know how that's going to translate to if i saw it again right away or like if i saw right. it in like a week yeah. from now and sometimes you're asked to give your opinion after one viewing and that can be mm-hmm. so difficult because you know the best films sit with you like i when i first saw Midsomar, i i laughed half through the i laughed i laughed at the <laughs> entire film i was like girl i would not be in a situation out of the hollywood would never have tried to come for me in the first place i'd have been out Too many white people wearing too many white uh, accessories. I had to get out of there. But I have come back to it over and over again. And it has grown on me because like, the more we watch it, the more I find different things to engage with. And sometimes that is more fun than getting it right the first time.
2: And that's shitty, right? Because unfortunately your review after your first viewing is there forever. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's
3: frustrating. It's the most frustrating thing about being a, a movie critic is that like, you don't get to be like, let me revisit this after three rewatches. Let me revisit yeah. this after. Like, no one clicks on that one. All they want to know is, like, no. two stars, three stars, or whatever. And for me, the difference between a two and a half and a three-star review can be, like, anything. Like, it can be the mood that I was in when I saw it. It could mm-hmm. be how noisy the theater was when I watched it. Like, a bad theater experience as well, like, it ruined mm-hmm. Dune for me. Like, I saw Dune in a terrible theater that was, like, <laughs> uh, a couple years ago, we had, like, a really terrible flood. And it was right... During the Dune premiere. (laughs) And so, like, I saw Dune in the middle of a deluge, poetic as hell. And it was like (laughs) the floodlights kept going off during the movie. So, I, they're already whisper talking. So, I can't hear shit. And I'm just sitting here, like, I don't know if this is the Muad'Dib. I don't know if we're out here with the Gum Jabbar. All I know is that I'm annoyed. And I don't even know how I feel about this (laughs) film anymore. Sorry for that interlude. I just, no, I, just, no. I just I just I just remember. It. I got flashbacks to that moment.
2: I, I, I th- again, like I think, like for anyone that isn't a critic who is listening to us, like you know, we are people too, and we I don't want to say make mistakes, but like we're human, you know. But I think it's the same thing. Even if you're not, you know,
0: say you're just a person who likes watching movies. Like I've had experiences where I watch something by myself, and then I try to get other people to watch it because I either liked it or didn't like it, or I want their opinions, and it's a completely different experience. I think. Mm-hmm the main distinction is just that we write down our thoughts as opposed to somebody who's like, oh, I'm going to have a conversation with my friend about that movie afterwards.
2: That's okay. I always tell people because, you know, I feel like critics always get like the shit stick, right? Because like, oh, critics hate everything, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, 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 we don't Mm -hmm. hate everything. It's just that when you have to write 800 words about why a movie is or is not good, Mm -hmm. you your brain learns to start looking for things. And I'm not trying to say, oh, if you're not a critic, you don't do this. You're like, not smart it's just that your your brain hasn't been trained to look for those things you're just kind of going into it as a oh did i enjoy it or did i not enjoy it for like you know like that kind of a thing
3: and like and here's the thing that is a valid Mm -hmm. thing for somebody someone wants that kind of critic i always tell people Mm -hmm. like i love to watch a movie see what my favorite critic thought about it and if we feel differently figure out where we met right. and where we disagree like i don't look to a film critic to be like the the great arbiter of taste <laughs> i I, lo- I look to film critics to be like what are people saying what are things yeah. to look out for what are things to be aware of that mm-hmm. i might miss because these are my peers yes and maybe they have an insight that i don't have and even as before i was a peer i just a fan it was like i have liked this person's opinion before let me see what they say about this film like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i like su- i like sucker punch. If I I I have seen people make me feel like I should bury my head in sand and just let right. myself die for enjoying that movie. And yet here I here I am, persevering. So it'll be okay.
0: <laughs> let the record show you can like Sucker Punch and still
2: thrive.
3: You can, I promise out there. There are dozens of us. Dozens.
2: A whole dozen. <laughs> A baker's dozen. A baker's dozen. <laughs> but okay. Well so now that we've kind of got this whole, like, how how are we going to approach this film out of the way? <laughs> mm. Joe, I pass the torch to you. Okay. Yeah. So, folks, if you haven't gathered, this is
0: not the most conventional film when it comes to straightforward narratives. So we're not going to do this beat by beat, because as Trace and I messaged each other earlier today, it would be like and then this happens and then this happens and then this person does this thing so i don't know that you folks would get that much out of that so we're gonna approach this a little bit more sort of through a character-based lens so we're gonna walk you through who the people are and sort of what happens to them and then we might double back and start
2: again with a different character and so on so basically we're going to re-edit the movie and put it into vignettes (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> sort of yeah uh, i'm so excited for this I, I, even as someone who watched it, i'm just like yes tell me everything
2: what's the truth
0: uh okay well the truth is that the film opens with a bit of a fake out because you think that we're about to watch a woman break into her daughter's room and maybe murder her because she's holding a knife so this is our introduction to lisa harper who is played by marika Engelhart. And yeah, she goes into her daughter's room with this knife, and then her daughter is not there, so she puts on her dress, and then we fade into a scene of a car arriving at a lake, and this is Andy, who is played by Ty Olson, and he basically tries to force band majorette Carolyn, who is played by Raven Whitley, into sex. And she's not she's not opposed to the idea until she ...is opposed to the idea, and then she wants it to stop, and of course, Andy is a piece of shit, and he doesn't listen, he tries to force her, and when she fully rejects him, he knocks her down, steals her glasses, and leaves her bloody and bleeding on the ground.
2: So, do we see any significance in, like, the carving in his forehead...
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The movie kind of does this sort of mystical objects, like certain things that are tied to Carolyn's disappearance uh, show up through the film. So we've got his scar, which lights up as a a bit of a beacon, and it's bandaged throughout the rest of the film. And then he also takes her glasses, which shine, and then... I feel like there's one other one that i'm forgetting but i feel like they're just kind of they're bright lights that signify that carolyn is still around like her memory is still alive
3: yeah it felt very like mystical like like a witch marking her mm-hmm. like you know marking that what's going to symbol like branding him almost to be like no we're bonded which then right. was like escalating things to this way of like i just felt like this boy really walking around here with his head bleeding over everybody and everyone's just like yes yeah, cool
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) like no one ever asks him. No one says, hey, weren't you at the lake with her that night? Or what were you doing out that night? Where did you get the cut? It's it's one of those things where if you try to approach the movie through that lens, like why aren't people asking questions and trying to solve answers? Nope. Once again, that's the wrong approach.
2: Yeah, exactly. But I actually think, though, you could read it as a commentary. Like all these people are so wrapped up in their own lives that they don't Uh really care. I mean, we also get a little tidbit of that whenever the substitute teacher is like, oh yeah, a girl went missing when I was in high school. What was her Mm -hmm. name? I don't remember. Yeah, It's just
0: like, wow, dude. A, great story. And B, (laughs) you're a bit of a piece of shit. (laughs) I mean, we'll find out later. He's a big piece of shit. Yeah, it's like, thank you for
3: that riveting narrative. So so brave, so bold.
0: (laughs) Stunning and brave. I mean, that scene to me in particular is so suggestive of how parents or like adults cannot connect with teens, especially in this movie where he's he's trying to be cool and relate to them. You know, oh, I had a similar experience. Oh, really? Tell us more. No, I can't. Sorry. Oops.
2: Even the girls, they seem to care, but they also don't really care. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. it's a lot of the um, the activism for Carolyn's uh, for Carolyn's search almost feels performative by some of these people. Yeah, yeah, because they all have their own lives, right? Like they have their own drama,
0: and sometimes it's just a lot to say. I'm going to take on another person's burden when I'm dealing with my own conflict and pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean we we've experienced that for two and a half years.
3: <laughs> oh yes, we have. <laughs> and also, teenagers can be cruel. And mm-hmm. I think you know, people are always like, why do everyone writes about YA? It's because. Being a teenager is the one time where you think you know everything, Mm -hmm. you think you're invincible, and you have Mm -hmm. just enough responsibilities to feel like an adult without actually being an adult. So it's the perfect place to explore what a nihilistic, cynical outlook looks like because it's based on just the true feelings of being in this liminal space that feels like it's going to go on forever. And there are some who in that liminal space are like, I'm going to peak now. (laughs)
0: And there are others that are like, I
3: just cannot wait to be 30. I was the latter.
0: I was also the latter.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was like, please make me be 30 tomorrow. I can't do
0: it. Please let me get out of here. Okay, so we get at the title card and then we immediately are thrust into scenes of like this industrial town. So if your Twin Peaks kind of radar is going off, but also I think Princess, you said, you know, yeah, it's like a Midwest kind of vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is stories from a different part of North America of the United States than we traditionally see. This is not the polish of Jawbreaker in a, a Los Angeles high school or something like that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so we we get a suggestion that carolyn is dead because we see her body with her phone sticking out of the back pocket and she doesn't appear to be moving but yeah as we've talked about this is really less about her and what her disappearance does to other people so let's break down the sort of three main characters that we're going to follow and then they've got all these secondary people orbiting them Mm -hmm. so We have three principal female characters and we get the suggestion that they've all either known Carolyn or they were friends of hers, but they maybe haven't been in a while. And Trace, I think that could be another reason why people don't seem as concerned because it's like, was anyone actually really close with her or were they just around her every day?
2: Yeah, because we get that line from Joanna where she's like, oh, yeah, we were really good friends in seventh grade. But mm-hmm. right. honestly, it really does seem like the person who was closest with her was her mother. Maybe right. because I couldn't tell if her mother was actually close with her or if she felt such guilt over not having her anymore that that's why she was like, mm. well, be- behaving the way she is in this movie.
3: Yeah. Oh, my God, that sniffing scene. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The mom is this mom, Lisa, is my favorite character, and I actually like. I would have taken a whole movie about this. It's it's. I, I thought this woman's performance was fantastic, and it was just mm-hmm. like, soul crushing to watch her unravel. Um, but at the end, I felt so happy for her. <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird Same. happy, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that
3: that bittersweetness is just always the best, in my opinion. <laughs>
2: and, no, and that's the thing is we're like, I mean, again, I'm sorry, I'm going broad again here, but where it's like, I, I was on the wavelength of the feelings that this movie wanted me to feel. So on that mm-hmm. level, this movie did work for me. Like, I was shocked. I went from feeling like indifferent to confounded to frustrated to invested to like this cathartic moment even though there's not really a bunch of catharsis in this movie
0: not really Mm. people grow like there's definitely character arcs for nearly everyone and some of them are small and some of them are a little bit bigger but it does feel like the movie leaves us in a slightly more optimistic i'm not going to say happy place because i don't think anybody's situation has really resolved but I don't know. Maybe catharsis is the right word because people seem
2: in a slightly mm, better place than they were at the beginning. I mean, it's as people, you know, we we feel bad in bad times and we go up and down. But uh, I know we rarely start with the ending of the film, but Reader's thoughts on the ending, it is a hopeful ending. It is a story about the possibility of redemption and learning from your mistakes, being either a young person who does not have to live with the mistakes of the adults around you or being an adult and being able to change the course of your life without ruining it. It's also about surviving a tragedy and surviving trauma.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm guessing
2: that's a quote from Reader. That is exactly a quote from meter.
0: Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, Trace, that's so astute. Like, wow. Right.
3: So good. <laughs> you should have a podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong, Trace, that we're also meant to pick up what this mother is putting down. Like, a lot of the film reviews would say, you know, there's these three main girls, and those are the characters that we're really following. I think that there's four, and the fourth character
2: is the mother. Ah, see, I think there's six because I think we're dealing with the mothers and the daughters.
3: Mmm, it's very Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> mothers, and When you're it's... off on like
3: the...
1: <laughs> all the
2: mothers are so different, and like uh, to see like how all of them are, and the daughters they have raised, and I, actually I think the daughters are for the most part like. They seem more well-adjusted than their mothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All
0: These mothers have
2: (laughs) have things going on.
0: (laughs) They'd be fucked up. Okay. Well, let's walk through some of these people. So we have um, Charlotte is one of our characters. She is a fashion designer, and she's also a musician. She plays in a band. She's played by Irony Roach and things to know about Charlotte she doesn't like dances but she does secretly like pink even though you will almost never see her wear it throughout the film she has very striking makeup and very like theatrically designed clothing that mm-hmm. sometimes you're like oh she's doing it because she's giving a presentation in English and then you'll see her later that day and she's still wearing the outfit and you just
2: realize no, that's just who she is. that's who Charlotte is, yeah, and unfortunately she i i she is the least developed well maybe maybe Colleen's the least developed character, but um, yeah, I didn't get much of Charlotte in this film, so i'm intri- I'm interested to see if y'all did.
3: I really like i again, I don't think she did a lot, but I found her very striking every time that she showed up. I love the tribal makeup that she would
1: mm-hmm. wear, mm-hmm. and
3: i I think that I think that all the 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 characters have, like, small moments. Like, I, I enjoyed the little back and forth between her and the uh, that one football player who was trying to be not like other boys.
0: Yeah. Yes, that's uh, Jason, played by Jalen Gilbert.
3: I also was just very intrigued, because I know, like, this is in, like, the Midwest. So I was just like, so we have this, like, very visible dark-skinned black woman wearing, like, African tribal makeup mm-hmm, to school. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, like, you see, like, the people who are... Mocking her, like especially the scene where they, um, those guys fling the backpack in her way, are like these white boys that are just. So that small bit of those tiny moments said a lot to me, just because they were speaking to this larger, you know, entrapment that like all mm-hmm. of these youngers are dealing with a certain kind of entrapment due to their socioeconomic positions, but also for a character like Charlotte, who is dark skinned, very mm-hmm. Afrocentric in how she is, you know, wearing herself. It's also just like, every time she expresses herself, she's also putting herself in the line of harassment by other people, but she keeps doing it, which I found to be like, this is a quiet character thing that she was doing.
2: Well, no, but I'm glad that you're saying that, Princess, because that's something that I never would have honestly picked up on by myself, because I'm just focused on, well, what is her arc in this, which just seems to be, you know, go to homecoming and sing. So I, I appreciate that input and that insight, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean I I had an
0: inkling of it but I also confused it with as I said that sense of theatricality because she has a couple of friends with her in the band and like one of them wears like a hijab that's made out of safety pins and mm-hmm. it kind of looks like armor and it's mm-hmm. so visually striking but part of me was like okay so is this like a mild commentary on religion you know we we don't really get to know much about afra so i was just like oh this is interesting but i don't feel like there's enough here for me to you know pick up something a little bit deeper or more meaningful but i think by extension of what you just said we could read afra and some of the other sort of like darker skin girls in that way right
3: i think it's sort of like shorthand redefining i cuz i um this is not to like push back but i think about mm-hmm. you know because we're not used to seeing these sort of these sort of images on screen it feels like if they right. are there that they must be indicating something more than beyond just difference mm, you know right. but to me i think that what it is doing is sort of like highlighting that like this may be somebody who like Maybe you come from a Muslim background, is Muslim. And this is how they express their artist, their their personality and their artistry through mm-hmm. wearing a hijab. Like, maybe to them, this is, like, their new normal. Because I think about, like, in Euphoria, everyone's wearing, like, big eye makeup and doing this. Like, what very yeah. much what this generation is very into is expressing yourself however you see fit. Mm-hmm. So, like, she's wearing all these colorful things. But I think it's just to be, like, this is her normal. And it isn't right. just this one white midwestern thing but it is this new enclave of people who are not going to just assimilate into whatever a mainstream ideal is because there is no more I mean that's the one thing that everyone says about Gen Z like it is very much everyone wants to be unique and individual and I think that sort of like escalated but this time you know with brown people which then complicates our visual shorthand because we are used to difference being there to indicate something more when it Mm -hmm. really is just normal. Quote right. Quote. Hmm. Sorry, that got very diatribe. I, I was I no, to, like, I no, should no, no,
0: the no, no. <laughs> Do not apologize. Don't ever apologize for that kind of stuff, because that's actually the stuff that we find listeners appreciate the most.
3: Yeah. Then, then I don't apologize. Then I retract my <laughs> I, re- I retract my apology. <laughs>
0: uh, it, it's interesting because thinking about that, I mean, in some ways, each of the girls have their own oh shocker they each have their own sort of costume or their own way of defining themselves because like if we jump down to Joanna who is she's the the white girl of the white girl (laughs) but she's kind of coded as more lower class because she's not particularly fancy but she does wear a lot of uh as I mentioned in the intro sort of like feminist icon t-shirts right like so Mm -hmm. she's doing a different kind of political statement or, like, political activism through her wardrobe. But she's also, like, selling drugs and, like, doing the Oranges
2: and the New Black, like, panty selling mm-hmm. scheme. That's what I kept thinking about when I, every time, every time, both times I watched this movie, where um I actually kept looking at, like, what, what was going on in their rooms, which is not something that I always do, but it's, like, a thing where it's, like, I I fully believe because we're working with a troupe of, like, theater actors, or not maybe not a troupe, but, like, they're all, like, from theater, They Mm -hmm. did extensive backstories for their characters. I have to Mm -hmm. believe that. And every article of clothing, every piece of decor in their house or their rooms is intentionally put there. The only one that I really couldn't get my finger on is um, Joanna's mother's foil pillowcase. Right. I just took that to be kind of like the foil
0: hats with aliens like it's symbolic to me of like okay she's oh. she's working through some mental illness stuff got
2: it got it got it like like paranoia got it mm. yeah yeah that makes sense
3: but yeah i think with joanna's character what was she reminded me and just like her aesthetics about like almost like nancy from the craft like this the white girl who mm. is like <laughs> in this very kind group and it's like you know sorry sweetie you're white it's like it's like it's like one of those <laughs> things where it's like her her class her class element is like that part of her character Right, And I feel like I know from what I've read it that Reader is very interested in that. Sort of like what it means to be quote-unquote white trash mm. in in an environment and like what that aesthetic looks like. And I think I have the quote here. She said that white trash describes a certain aesthetic, but I think it's a socioeconomic situation and a way of perceiving the world around you and your own place in it. So I think that's mm. what she's trying to sort of like Use the clothes and kind of encourage, I guess, since you said it's their theater to actors, encouraging them to be like, how do you express this character through clothing? Which is probably them going to, you know, urban and vintage stores and getting their
2: stuff. But also, though, isn't it a bit of an inversion? Because typically, historically, Mm -hmm. you would have the white girl be the more affluent from the wealthy family in the good neighborhood. And this in this movie and the people of color would be in the, you know, the rough side of town. So this movie flips that.
3: Oh, yeah. Because they know that that's dry. They're like, you know, <laughs> they're like, we don't. We're like, we we're only work in working class whites now. Sorry, <laughs> we don't buy them in that flavor.
2: <laughs> yeah, her dad is an out of work clown magician
3: terrible i hated that so much i didn't know that i just watched the whole thing about Pettywise the other day but i was just like i'm not into clowns not today not again <laughs> no you mean
2: you don't want to get hand jobbed uh, and blow to clowns
3: <laughs> i thought a clown going down on me sounds like the most terrifying thing makeup is gonna get everywhere <laughs> like he what?
2: just comes up and that face is right there
3: <laughs> i like what's first of all if it's not schmear then obviously either you have the most amazing setting spray known to man please share right. like or you did a terrible job but you did it all with that clown crap it's gonna get all over my thighs you can't cheat with that those are not good cheating conditions you go get caught
0: we could talk about the scene later on but like there is fully a moment where the character of renee who is played by kate Arrington, Mm -hmm. she's the mother of a character we haven't really introduced yet (laughs) but um Like she literally goes to pick up her daughter and she has the clown paint all over one side of her mouth. And I was just like, (laughs) Jesus Christ, we're back into basic instinct territory where it's like, well, how did that get there? (laughs) Oh, right. It's because you were sucking his dick. (laughs) For the record, I don't read Dan, who is played by Tim Hopper. Uh, This is Joanna's father. I read him as he's out of work and he wants to be a clown oh Oh, did you read him as oh he's an out of work clown
2: okay that honestly that makes him a bit more interesting (laughs) to Mm -hmm. me
3: (laughs) that honestly makes him feel creepier to me i (laughs) I feel i (laughs) you know john wayne gacy ruined it for anyone you cannot be a working
2: clown you can't be a sexy clown either
3: no no stop it be a mime
2: yes mimes are sexy clowns are not oh y'all should go see terrifier 2 to see how mime clowns do for you (laughs) Oh god. (laughs) but i will say because we don't get a ton with a ton of time with dan but i actually i don't pity dan i actually do empathize with dan because a renee is horrible to him Mm -hmm. but i actually really love the scene when he gives joanna the mixtape like i I, that was such a brief moment of like genuine father-daughter bonding that i really 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 connected with Mm -hmm.
3: that was sweet I just didn't want to see him go dead on anybody else. Oh, yeah, no,
0: that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's a bit of a perplexing character. And I think the reason you like that scene, Trace, is because it's the only real scene where we get to see him be vulnerable and like a human being. And it's interesting because Joanna has, I don't want to say a fraught relationship with her parents, like her, her mom, Lynn, uh, as we said, played by Audrey Francis, has some either mental illness or very extreme depression maybe some psychosis because as you said princess she does talk to her shirt at one point in this film but you know Joanna doesn't seem to have parents who are either watching her or paying attention to her so she's out there like making money on her own because if she doesn't like who knows what's going to happen to this family and that's challenging. But when we get to see these moments where there is tenderness, like when Lynn paints Joanna's nails, I thought, ah, oh, this is great. Like there are those moments, even amidst the the sadness and the tragedy.
2: Also that I mean, look, it's simple, it's small, it's tiny, but that is Lynn's climax. Like yeah. the, that mm-hmm. is that is what her entire arc has been building up to just wanting to do her daughter's nails and she gets yeah. to do it. And she's, quote unquote, fine during that scene. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a nice sort of lucid moment. Right. Mm -hmm. We also haven't said that Andy is Joanna's brother. Oh, right.
3: Oh, right. The the dirt bag. When he showed up, Mm -hmm. I was like, why is he in? Oh, right, right, right. (laughs) There were a lot of moments where I would get so into one moment. I'd be like, oh, wait, why is this motherfucker in here? And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. this motherfucker lives
2: here. I I will tell you right now, on my first viewing, I I had to keep, I was writing down character names, relationships, because I was like, there are so many characters, so many things going on. I'm losing track of who's who. And then with Andy, I was like. So is he just fucking everyone? Like, is that, is yeah. that what he's Which, doing?
0: Yes, but also he does live there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's almost more helpful to jump to the end of the film because uh, Reader organizes the credits, at least for the two main families by family name so like this is the Kitz miller family so we have joanna dan lynn and andy and then we also have the darlington family and this is uh renee who we previously mentioned she is pregnant and will later revealed to be
2: not pregnant because <laughs> she's oh, yeah. faking the whole thing
3: such so, so she missed on glee i
2: was like right i was because because which because here's the thing because my first thought is how does her husband not notice that she's not pregnant but again that's, that's the not point, fucking. right? <laughs> like, they are so distant and detached from each mm-hmm. other, he, he doesn't even notice his wife is not actually pregnant.
0: Well, and, and this family is, quote-unquote, more normal, right? Like, we see them all sitting down to have breakfast, and she's cooking pancakes, and, you know, they're trying to engage the kids, but, like, no one is actually talking to one another, ever. And it seems like everybody hates Renee. She's got this forced frivolity to her. Like the main character that we're following from this family is Laurel. She's a cheerleader played by Kayla Carter. She mm-hmm. has a brother, Jesse, played by Robert T. Cunningham. And then their father is Sheriff, Doug, who is played by James Vincent Meredith. And I mean, I I don't understand if this is a traditional interracial marriage or if Renee is like new on the scene like, like she's their stepmother it. because oh boy Laurel has no time or patience for this woman
2: see I actually love this though because to me the Darlington's and the Kitz Miller's it's just two different versions of families you would see in suburbia right the one that mm-hmm. is quote-unquote trash and everyone knows they're quote-unquote trash and then a family that on the outside publicly everyone is like oh they're the perfect they've family. got it together yeah but yeah. they're just as again quote-unquote bad <laughs> as the other <laughs> they're family <fucked> up. yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, Princess,
0: do you have a read on this family?
3: Like, when I first saw her, I was like, you don't fit in here when you see Renee and her belly and Mm -hmm. everything. I found her very odd. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think the moment that defines her is when she makes this the sign for Carolyn spells her name wrong. And (laughs) it was like, well, I can't stand over. I I put so much work into this. And I was like, okay
0: okay (laughs) i know who you are right away just with that one line of dialogue well you misspelled it oh but i can't start over
3: like but i but look at all the work i did i also kept getting like the actress who plays her kate Arrington. i -hmm. kept thinking that she was this one actress from criminal minds and so it was like (laughs) the entire time i'm like it? No, it doesn't say it. I have the cheat sheet, but I was very in confusion. And I think when, I think I laughed out loud when I realized that she was having a fake pregnancy because I associate that so much with Glee that I was just kind Mighty. of like, and that's what she missed on Glee.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah. So those are sort of like the main characters and we follow them over the course of either a couple of days or a week as carolyn's disappearance sort of looms over everything but like we're still going to class and joanna is selling used underwear to principal marcus who was played by tony fitzpatrick and yeah like it's an interesting mix i think traces this is why you said slice of life right because mm-hmm. in some ways it feels like we're just seeing a bunch of scattered scenes And yet at the same time, they're also painting this vivid picture of what their lives are like. I feel like we're trying to sort out whether this is a post carolyn like are they acting this way because this girl is missing or is it this girl is missing and this is the way that they
2: act like their lives mm. are just like this but at the same time they like this movie is like just flat out refusing traditional narratives because again you would think okay so we're seeing all these different people wow how are they all going to tie together by the end of the movie because yeah right th- this also doesn't do that <laughs> yeah
3: And I think, you know, that I think, like, despite all of my little, like, there are times I felt it lagged, but I think ultimately why I enjoyed the film was because it allowed itself to just do this one thing, and that Mm -hmm. is tell the story the way it wanted to and not feel confined. Like, with the Northmen, I remember reading about how the director, I think it was
0: Robert Eggers.
3: Robert, thank you. He had a whole vision for the movie, how he wanted to go, and then they wanted him to make it more mainstream and i thought that that's what made it so boring um, yeah. when, I, when i was watching it i was, just like, I was just like this is not the movie he was trying to make this isn't my king right. uh so i just was like you know th- there is something about allowing an actor to just really go for lack of a better, balls out <laughs> open <over Yeah>. out <laughs> and just be like no i'm telling it the way i want to this is going to be my gremlins too nothing needs to make sense i'm gonna do it and i just As someone who, as I get older, the more I appreciate filmmaking Mm -hmm. and appreciate what it means to be able to make art without having a corporation destroy it from the inside out. I'm just like, go off, queen. Like, if this is what you want to do, if you just want to choose chaos, let's just do it. (laughs) That's what
2: tends to happen, right? Because we Mm -hmm. get these, like, hot, up-and-coming indie horror, or just indie, writer and directors. And then, yes, studios nab them. And then they put them in studio films and they have to work within that system and it's just there's more money in it but there's less artistic freedom in it
3: yeah like I remember watching Eternals and I just thought like wow I can see the movie that she wants to make and I see the movie that Marvel wanted her to make and they are just like battling for supremacy throughout Mm -hmm. this entire film and it's sad because like you know she wants to make an Arthur C. Clarke novel and to a film and they want her to make
0: A franchise temple. Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) And and, and so we all must now suffer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For two and
2: a half hours.
3: Even though I do have a warm spot for Eternals, but uh, because Angelina Jolie...
2: My my husband loves the Eternals.
3: <laughs> I, so me and my homeboy, we talked about it. We're like, you know, maybe it's because we really about that sci-fi life. And we're just like, we like the celestials popping out at the end. We're just like, you're like we're just very nerdy about it. But I, I get why it doesn't work, but I just
2: love it. I, I think it's one of those things where uh, Joe, it's like how was your bloodline for you? Where it's like, right. look, it doesn't really fully work, but there's so mm-hmm. I see so much there's of what they were interesting ideas. In. Well, and it's just it is different. It doesn't it, it does feel like a Marvel movie, but it doesn't feel like a Marvel Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that way about this movie to
0: a certain extent, mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, some parts of it feel a little bit messy. Some parts of it maybe feel unfocused to me as an audience member standing outside and just trying to get what Reader is putting into this. And yet, as I said, I think there's a lot to admire. And I'd almost rather have a messy quote-unquote imperfect film that Mm -hmm. is challenging and gives us lots of things to talk about and memorable moments or performances than something that just has all the polish and gleam but it has no soul or nothing to say right like give me messy over perfection because perfection is often just like yeah like you said princess it's there to make a bunch of money well yeah
2: but that's also, I mean, you know, there's uh, even the negative reviews for this film, you know, I saw so many, you know, oh, it's all style, no substance complaints. And again, it's one of those right. things where I'm like, I, again, even as someone who's like lukewarm-ish on the film, leaning positive, mm-hmm. I don't think there's no substance here. It's just you have to do the work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to look for it.
3: And I, I think that's the key part is like audiences are not lazy because they don't want to think. It's because mm-hmm. they have been taught that they will be told everything Right. at the start yep, and that they will find out everything at the end and if you don't do that <laughs> it's not like i remember like i i have also seen artsy fartsy movies that have made me feel nothing or feel <laughs> sure. like i yeah i i remember seeing under the skin and i was just like i know this is a good movie but i i never want to see this ever again like oh, this
1: love under the skin
3: <laughs> i am an adult enough to be able to say it's an excellent movie but the scene of like the baby getting washed away, oh, yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
3: horrified me mm-hmm. on a level oh, of like, God, because it was because I was not prepared for that, because everyone was there. like. She takes off her clothes, and I'm just like, okay, I guess it's just an alien hot girl movie. It was mm-hmm. not no, it's alien not. hot girl movie. <laughs> Definitely wasn't. And
2: that, that that is more of an art house film than this is. Actually, I'm trying to think. What was mine? Mine is um under the silver lake, the follow up from the it follows guy. I mm. suffered <laughs> through all two and a half hours of that boring ass neo noir. <laughs> Like, I, I, yeah. did, I mean I
0: just because <laughs> you make something that's artistically driven or like visually compelling and light on narrative or something to that effect yeah. it also doesn't always mean it's good right like sometimes yeah. the bullshit meter is going off because we we look at the film and we're like well okay <laughs> thanks for that yeah, yeah. It's
3: like oh, we, we, we'll eat <laughs>
0: But to come back to your point, Trace, I think one of the things we have to talk about specifically with this film and the way that those critics called it style over substance. Mm -hmm. I think that we're back into a territory where we're talking about female driven narratives, young female driven narratives, Mm -hmm. principally male, older men film critics So I'm going to come back to Reader. So she says, In my opinion, the majority of contemporary films made for and about teen and adolescent girls are inaccurate. I'm trying to correct this discrepancy. In terms of the creative process, every decision is focused towards making a sensitive and realistic portrayal of girlhood. The goal affects everything from casting to the camera we use to the music and art direction. And then a little while later in the same interview, she says, In real life, young girls have very little agency. I seek out those tiny bits and moments where this is not the case, and I put all that into the film. It's about the size and the glances and the secret language and the deep understanding they naturally possess about the adult world around them. I try to highlight the agency. The girls are the heroes." And to me, that is a really good encapsulation of this movie. Mm -hmm. You may not find it super enthralling or dynamic or like the plot doesn't really grab you. But this does feel like a glimpse into the intimate lives of girls Mm -hmm. at a particular moment when they're sort
2: of fraught with chaos and conflict. Would either one of you or both of you consider this a feminist film? Oh, fuck yeah.
3: Yeah, I think for sure. It's very much a feminist film story with feminist lens incorporated into it i think it does the work
2: so, uh, Joe, I will see your quote and bring you another one from reader. Because <laughs>
3: oh yes, quotes
2: escalating quotes. Because I love a, this. So, I, I guess for some people, because honestly, I'm going back, even back to our basic instinct discussion, Joe, where it's like you know the community of feminists are divided on what counts sure. as good and bad female representation, oh, right? All the time. Same thing with the queer community and good and bad queer representation. But well, it's
0: because these are not monoliths, right? Like there isn't a feminist community. There's like. A million women who are like, I declare myself a feminist, but also I have completely
2: different values from the next person who says the same thing, right? Exactly. So I guess, though, the implication is readers seem prepared to say my, my characters are flawed. So because right. I guess there are people that think, oh, look, if you have these women that are making mistakes cheating on their husband, like doing all this stuff that that's not feminism that is oh, the opposite God. so what a reductive response <laughs> oh. she says um even though there's a dead girl and there's very broken and problematic female characters, it's important to offer feminist films that still offer problematic portrayals of the female experience because it feels authentic. It is a film that, by the end, has a lot to do with these aspects of solidarity among the girls, and, in a way, solidarity between the mothers and the daughters. So when faced with deep emotional crisis, women can repress all that. They'll deny it. They'll retreat, which I think is specific to humans, not just uh, women. But um, she wanted to portray complicated mothers, be it a mother so desperate to become a mother again, or a mother who has completely lost her ability to mother, or a mother who doesn't know who she is anymore when her daughter goes missing. And she tacks onto this it was important for her too that the women have helped teach the men something so when Laurel tells Andy that he treats women like shit multiple times (laughs) she's trying to help him and let him know that not all is lost he can turn it around and this is what Reader calls inclusive feminism it should help men Mm. people of color and people with disabilities and everyone else in between like it's not just women and I think that's a really interesting and insightful quote
3: agreed Ah, I'm so glad that you guys picked this movie because I love the chal. I no, I don't mean it. I love the challenge of being forced to like sit with the film and think of it in this way. I think that so many things get labeled as feminist mm-hmm. that it, it's refreshing to actually see something that is working towards feminism through the lens in which they we're telling these stories. Which means, like, how do you choose to frame like one of the most you know problematic tropes like the mm-hmm. dead the dead white girl,
2: mm-hmm. and make
3: it a more engaging story. And I think that's totally phenomenal.
2: And and see, so just in the hour plus we've been talking about this, I feel my two and a half rating moving up to a three. Right.
0: Yeah, and and to me, that's always been the power of this movie. Like, I watched this sitting by myself, and I really appreciate the musical aspects of it, which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. Like to me, that's the kind of standout part of the film. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that this film benefits from me sitting here by myself watching the movie and like taking a bunch of notes. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, <laughs> knowing that I was going to have this conversation with the two of you tonight made me sit throughout most of the day thinking about okay what is it about this film that works for me what is it actually trying to say where do i disconnect from it and then knowing that i would have to either argue my position or be prepared to accept different interpretations like princess you blew my mind with the costuming stuff and i was Mm -hmm. like i thought i had a handle on it but (laughs) because of the conversation the whole film is richer
2: for it right right yeah
3: i agree Aw. We did it.
2: <laughs> you earned your keep. You earned your keep, princess.
0: Yes. So there's like two, I mean, at least two main things that we haven't talked about. So one is music. And then the other is the queerness. Because, of course, we want to talk about the queer shit. That's mm. what we do here. So do you have a preference of where you'd like to go next?
2: No.
3: <laughs> yeah, let's just let's just, yeah Surprise us. Yeah, you pick. <laughs> be our hero okay. be our champion
0: okay well why don't we talk about the musical numbers because that was one of the things that really stands out in a lot of these reviews because as you said trace this is a certain kind of musical it's definitely not jukebox we're not doing musical numbers all the time they're used sporadically they're almost done a cappella style like overall, there's a bunch of them. But the the two that are done in the choir are sort of the most traditional. So we get to hear our lips are sealed is the opening number. And then later on, the girls will sing Blue Monday. And I really enjoy the Blue Monday piece because it sort of intersects with readers interest in how girls covertly communicate like how how they say things in ways that people aren't always paying attention to because throughout Blue Monday, specifically, they're singing, but then they're having side conversations that we get to see the subtitles of. And they're talking about like, what would happen if they went missing, or they've got something important to say. And it's, really an interesting way to offer insight into who the characters are while also presenting it in a captivating way that isn't somebody standing up and saying like oh well if
2: I disappeared I don't think anyone would notice for a week yeah um, Mm -hmm. I will gently correct you on this so it actually would be considered a jukebox musical because jukebox musical just means it is a musical comprised of songs that are well-known popular songs Okay, I thought they had to be like throughout the entire film and like of a particular genre or something. Not necessarily. I mean, yes, typically with musicals like, yeah, oh, it's all Mamma Mia, it's all ABBA songs, (laughs) American Idiot, it's all Green Day songs, like yeah, that or um, Rock of Ages, it's all 80s songs. But um, no, it's just popular songs. And while I will confess, I didn't love a lot of this, just because this isn't the type of musical that I gravitate towards. I will say that whenever I talk to people that don't like musicals, I'm always like, they're like, oh, I just, when they burst into song, I just zone out. I'm like, okay, but see, that's the thing, though, if you, if you pretend like they're not singing, and they are speaking the lyrics they are saying, then it's just dialogue, they just happen to be singing it. And so I actually like jukebox musicals a lot when they're when they work when they're good. Because if people already know the songs, then they don't have to go through that weird process of like, oh, shit, I'm watching a musical now, they know the words, they know the lyrics. So you already have you, that barrier is already gone. So watching this movie, right. if you know these songs and you know what the lyrics are and you know what the vibe of these songs are, then you are already a step ahead of me <laughs> when it comes to watching <laughs> this because you 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 know what these characters are feeling based on the lyrics they're singing.
3: No, for sure. I actually I do also love jukebox musicals. I just think that they are so rarely um,
2: done well. <laughs> done
3: well. Yeah, and it's so sad because I'm like, we could have it all, but we don't.
2: I mean, look, Mamma Mia! Here we go again. Maybe the greatest movie musical sequel ever made. So. Oh my god!
3: I felt so happy because I was able to tell Pierce Brosnan that I loved him in Mamma Mia, and I'm just like, oh, good
2: for wow. you. I told, I, I
3: did. I said it to his beautiful face.
2: Um, <laughs> listeners, in case you are not aware, Pierce Brosnan is infamous for having a terrible, terrible singing voice in Mamma Mia. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! Yeah. Listen,
3: you you have not experienced watching Mama Mia. So in New York, uh, in in Brooklyn, we have like this place called Syndicated Theater, and I think every year they have like this weekend where it's a Mama Mia sing along, and you go in, you get drinks, you get food mm-hmm. d- served. They actually for the event got like some artists, and they made like all this cool Meryl Streep art, and oh, you just gosh. get to like sing. <laughs> mamma mia and it was just like i've never been around so many women and femmes and gays <laughs> in my entire life just mm-hmm. having the, just having the most the time amazing time of their
1: time.
0: lives i'm sure and i just
3: thought to myself like this is art it. Is- <laughs> <laughs> so what
0: point. they Pierce need to do is film that and that becomes the next jukebox
2: musical yes yes uh- but, um, but no, I mean, the, the number that worked the most for me here actually was Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. Because again, I I, I, right. I really latched on to Lisa as a character. So watching these girls comfort her in her grief after knowing her daughter has been killed, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. is dead, because she hasn't been killed. Um, right. that, that was the most touching, like, scene for me.
0: Well, I also feel like it's the song you would most recognize, because the rest of these are, like, new wave
2: songs from the 80s, and I'm... Thinking you probably don't know many of them. Yeah. Well, especially because they're, they're not, they're all like, you know, slowed down versions of these songs. Mm-hmm. Like it's the fucking trailer epidemic again. But, um, right. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Britney Spears isn't singing it over the Promising Young Woman trailer. Trailers. I know. No, it, 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 hey, it wasn't Britney. No, it was some guy doing Britney Spears' toxic in the Promising Young Woman trailer. Um, no, no, no. But, um, no, it was this one. There was one other one.
0: Um, So there's Colleen and Laurel's duet, I Melt the World, and then the whole ensemble sings uh, Promises, Promises.
2: Yeah, but what's the one they all sing in the choir first? That is Our Lips Are Sealed. Yes, that one. I knew that one. Yeah. I actually think I only knew that from Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion.
3: (laughs) (laughs) A perfect movie. (laughs) Or maybe it was Clueless.
2: Maybe it's Clueless. But yes, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Right. But yeah
0: um i i think i just appreciate the use of musicality to further the narrative in an unconventional way like as you said trace if people listen to the lyrics then they're getting insight into what the characters are thinking or feeling and well these are obviously popular songs and i think it's almost a bit of a shallow read to try to go too deep into what the lyrics of the songs are because of the way they're sung acapella slowed down mm-hmm. sort of deep and meaningful. Like it does help to really establish the mood and change it at key points. Like for me, I I like promises promises the most because it's really melancholy. It's coming near the end of the film But also Carolyn gets to sing. Yeah. And it feels like the kind of last gasp before the reveal where we start to actually get some catharsis, right? It's when people are at their lowest points right before we'll get some kind of emotional breakthrough.
2: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Well why don't we shift gears and talk about our final topic, which is the depiction of queerness. So yes. we have Laurel, who is our cheerleader and she is dating Andy throughout most of this film. They seem to hate each other. And initially you think it's just because he's really handsy and mm-hmm. she just doesn't want him to touch her. But then about midway through the film, we are randomly introduced to a character named Colleen, who is played by Emma Laggi and it's revealed that uh, they are dating. So Laurel is a Mm. closeted lesbian and they have a bunch of kind of clandestine meetings. So they pass objects from their respective pussies over the toilet stall and they keep them in their lockers. And yeah, I don't know. This is interesting because it's nearly all of Laurel's arc, right? Like this is who she is and who she can't be. But I also feel like it's a very understated, like the queerness doesn't reveal much about her considering it's everything that she is in the film.
2: Two things. I do find it interesting that most of their scenes that they share together are dialogue free. Right. We don't have a lot of that. But again, and going into what Princess was saying earlier about how, yeah, this is like, it's a world where like, you know, everyone's trying to be different. Like there's no like no one's trying to fit in. So I find it interesting that the queer characters in this film are trying to hide it about themselves when everyone else in the in the movie is not doing that. So is, mm. is there a statement being made there like where it's like, oh, like, you know, yeah, we're, we're making all this progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done with the queer community. I don't know.
3: They said it was the rural Midwest, but I didn't. Did they ever say specifically where?
2: Honestly, I think it's it's
0: meant to be like a kind of geographical wherever
3: because the midwest is very you know like i i feel like i try to keep in mind that i live in a bubble Mm
2: -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i I, i'm you're in new york
3: (laughs) i'm in new york i'm in brooklyn i'm very gay it's my very gay partner and even like (laughs) everyone in my family knows i'm gay so it's like whatever yeah um so i i try to have empathy for this kind of situation only because like i think that there is still a fear of coming out and what that could mean like especially like for Laurel, who is who is Black, it's like, you know, yeah. you never know how people are going to react. You never know what's going to be the reality. I do wish there was a little bit more texture to it because that is literally all that you really get in this yeah. situation. And you're, you just are meant to infer certain realities. But it would be better if we just had a little bit more of that visual language of what they are hiding from
2: yeah right yes that was a much better way of trying to say what i was trying to say
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah because we see the 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 hints of like racialized violence with charlotte in small ways but you don't really you know especially with all the guys in the football jobs usually you'll see like a little bit of hazing a little bit of like light homophobia just you know a little touch just to let Mm -hmm. you know you can't have rights here so i think i was waiting for something like that to sort of inform a little bit more of those choices Mm -hmm.
0: yeah because of course you know one of the visual signifiers of laurel is that she is almost always wearing her cheerleading uniform it's like the easiest way to distinguish her and i couldn't help but wonder if we were meant to like do this inferred reading without ever being told that she can't come out publicly because she is a popular girl who's on the cheerleading squad and these kinds of things. But then I realized those are all stereotypes that I'm just drawing from other texts and other stories. And I, I didn't want to impose that on this movie yeah. because I don't know that it's there.
3: And I feel like it's also just interesting because like I say the most popular cheerleaders in media right now are gay. So it's like right. you know, I think I think I, I think of like, you know, I brought up a gun, but like Santana and Brittany from Glee, but mm-hmm. I'm a cheerleader, of course, right. you know, which definitely has like aesthetic roots in this. So it's like you know, you want something that will explain that.
2: Well, but, but, right. but I, I, Joe, I think you can put those stereotypes in this because the movie does specifically, mm-hmm. at least whenever she tells off Andy and he's like, he, he's so confused right. because it's not about, oh, I'm a shitty man. It's like, wait, I'm the football star i right. am th- this is my place in this school i this is the only re- this is the reasons he gives her as to why she cannot break like not she shouldn't break up with him but why she cannot break up with him so mm-hmm. i think it's less you putting the stereotypes on her than this the world of this movie saying that these stereotypes do apply to this character in this world
0: yeah because it's very like stan and delilah from the faculty right like there's this, <laughs> there's this
2: social hierarchy <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Reader dates head
2: football player. <laughs> well, but l- let's bring it over then to the way the girls interact, right? Because we have that. I think it's a really good scene where they're doing the dress fitting, and uh, I love that one. Charlotte yeah. and Laurel are like basically compete. They're verbally competing about who's done the most with. Is it with boys in general, <laughs> who's or which to
0: dick? And, yeah,
2: dick, <laughs> and they're both lying, but they don't tell each yes. other. But they're still best girlfriends, and I think this is also something Jennifer Reader was trying to tap into with like how girls. Girls are forced to behave and react around each other, especially yeah. when the subject of boys are involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I
3: think it's also, it kind of pushes against this idea that it's easier to be a queer woman than it is to be a queer man. You know, like I feel like there right. is some, I see this a lot when I discuss it with, you know, my my gay male peers is that like, it can feel like media treats that because women are allowed to have intimacy together mm-hmm. and they can just be gay. And it's like, who cares? Uh-huh, two girls kissing, blah, 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 But that is just such a minimalization of the reality of the situation. And so I think in some ways, if this film were more streamlined, more traditional mm-hmm. i think we would have gotten like that quiet scene of like them under the bleachers talking about like I can't tell my mom my dad he's got this right. new baby coming and you know i'm gonna be <laughs> in college soon so like i'll just tell him after that you know
0: We'll just wait. We'll just wait.
3: Yeah, it's just like, it's not a big deal. Like, who cares? You know, just something like that.
2: And, you know, I, I, I'm conflicted because while I don't want that scene, because it's like, oh, God, this is so cliche. Like, We've okay, yes, we get forever. it. Yeah. But but at the same time, I do want it because, as you said, I want to know what what is keeping them from being open about this. Unless it really just is, like, tied into what Andy said
3: yeah and it could also just be as simple as they're not ready you know like right. it, mm-hmm. you, you can come out whenever you're ready to it just when we're looking at film you were looking for intent and because right. we're looking for intent it's like
2: <laughs> and i think it? that's the, when we're talking about <laughs> representation so again like you know a reader was going for authenticity with this film and so i think if you are able to relate to at least one of these characters you're going to pull more insights in and like fill in more blanks than someone who doesn't relate to these characters does and so I think what is Mm -hmm. good about this one what is admirable about this film Joe to steal your term is that it is giving representation to types of characters we don't normally see in film so while maybe the audience that will really 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 connect with this is smaller that doesn't Mm -hmm. matter it's really good it's a good thing that we are we are uh, having an audience that is like this the niche audience that will relate to these characters
0: yeah. And and Princess, I like your reference of But I'm a Cheerleader because that's like mm-hmm. an unconventional, somewhat confronting, but also cult favorite where mm-hmm. it didn't do well and then it found its audience and it's now a beloved classic. Yeah. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. not going to work for everybody either.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Do we do we like the passing of the objects over the stall door? I, I was very much like, oh, okay, it's more lesbians hand touching. <laughs> but I I just thought it was like a very funny... I mean, I don't think it's intended to be laugh out loud, but it's amusing how the, the objects just become increasingly more ridiculous. But you're meant to focus on the intimacy of the fact that it's something that was in my body that I'm now passing to you. And I will confess... I found it incredibly confronting in a positive way the first time we see them pass the notes, and like the notes are wet. Yeah, and I was like, Yeah, yes, <laughs> fucking shock me because I'm not used to seeing like wet pussy juice notes going across the stall door. Wet
2: yeah. pussy juice notes.
3: Wop, we're talking wop, wop, wop. <laughs> wet ass
2: pussy paper. <laughs> 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 Um. Yeah. I, I. I. It's a thing where it's like you know. Yeah. Logistically. Well. I, I'm gonna say logistically doesn't make any sense. But maybe it does because I don't have the extensive knowledge of the female anatomy. But th- yeah, it, it is very much about yeah. The, this is intimate. Like this is just something very close that they are sharing with each other privately in bathroom stalls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Connected to it's in the same scene, but it's not connected to the theme. But. Charlotte walks in at one point when they're doing this and is carrying right. a book with the title Knives and Skin on it. Mm-hmm. What is that? I took that
0: to be like her her songs for her band because it's got that kind mm. of like, fuck yeah,
2: rock logo to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, never actually explained. No. I mean, it, it's like a meta. It's almost meta, but not. I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it's just there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah so i mean if folks have managed to follow the conversation and not actually (laughs) seen the film we can say at the end most everyone as you said trace gets at this kind of hopeful moment so charlotte and jason have this kind of rom-com subplot where he apologizes for acting like a douche when the other football jocks trip her and then they go to the dance and she sings and it's glorious. Uh, Joanna has nice moments with both of her parents and ultimately Dan's infidelity is revealed and he is kicked out. But Joanna gets that nice moment where her mom paints her nails. Laurel never comes out. But yeah, she does kind of get her comeuppance with Andy when she bedazzles his letterman jacket to let everybody know that he is shit to women.
2: Does she tell
0: Charlotte, though, that
2: she's has a girlfriend?
0: I think they just say that they... That, like, they both lied and they haven't actually touched a man's penis. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Huh.
3: So brave. (laughs) Mm.
1: (laughs) Stunning and brave.
2: What did she say? It looked like E.T. and then the face that Charlotte gives. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So perfect. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of, like, genuinely funny or amusing or poignant or kind of standout moments in this. Like, I don't always love the whole thing. But when you're watching, if you don't like something, you just have to wait like 30 seconds and then you'll have some brand new scene that might bedazzle you itself.
2: I'm sorry. I know we didn't like go super deep into Lisa and the mom. Princess, you touched on this earlier during the sniffing scene. But everyone, if you've Mm -hmm. not seen this movie, there is a scene where the mother Mm -hmm. of the dead girl gets in the car with the last person to see her, Andy. And she smells (laughs) Carolyn in the car. And yes. then she continues to smell Andy, makes him remove his shirt, which she then puts mm-hmm. on and wears for the next couple scenes. Um, yes. She makes out with him because she mm-hmm. can smell her daughter on his mouth, but not before he says, do you want to see my penis? <laughs> Lord.
3: Yeah. I was so exhausted by that. I was like, Please.
2: This kid just wants
0: someone to touch his penis. Like he is so <laughs> desperate for it. Carolyn won't touch it. Uh, Laurel won't touch oh, it. I don't want to you. touch it.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> but I do love that, yeah, Lisa, the mom, just says, no, I don't want that. Like, yeah he isn't even a person to her.
2: H- he's a conduit for her daughter. She's trying aura. to sniff
3: her daughter. Yeah, yeah. she's trying to yeah. sniff her daughter. Like, this isn't about you. Stop making it about no. me, man. <laughs>
2: but he's a teenage boy and he can't accept that. I definitely (laughs) would. I didn't, again, I didn't see this at a festival, but I would have liked to have seen this scene specifically at a film festival.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I do feel like the mother was giving such like brilliant, chaotic Sarah Palmer energy that I was just kind of like, I wonder if she watched it. Like, I was just like, it's that, that grieving that is so painful that you stop making sense yeah. because mm-hmm. the pain that you are living with doesn't make any sense and yep. I felt like she just threw herself into that so well that I was just like moved whenever I saw her uh even in that scene I was kind of like She's just playing this with so much gusto. It was just hard to look right. away. Oh,
2: yeah. she. she I, I Again, I, I know we keep saying Twin Peaks, but yes, the, I remember I had to watch the Twin Peaks pilot in a uh, film school. And, you mm. know, uh, uh, Grace Zabriskie has that scene when she, when she gets the phone call that her daughter's been mm. killed found dead. Oh, it's devastating. And she, yeah. yeah, she just screams and screams and screams. And you better believe that at least half of my class was laughing at this performance because... It's because they're so uncomfortable, though. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I am a crier in movies. Uh, one thing that almost that really made me tear up here is it's always it's always the same thing in movies. Whenever she says, "What if I stop being able to remember her correctly?" Like, what if I forget parts yeah. of her? Mm, yeah. and, and also the I never asked her what kind of funeral she wanted. Like that that stuff where it's like, oh God, like that really mm-hmm. hits her. again. This actress really just sold the movie for me. <laughs>
3: yeah, she yeah. was she was brilliant, and it it just I think. Those are the moments where you're like, "That's the au- that's what she meant by authenticity—just that raw,
0: mm-hmm. rough pain." But it's not uncontrolled, right? And it's not yeah. like wallowing in it. Like this character is an emotional roller coaster, but we're really there with her the whole time. It doesn't feel showy in the way that some people like, almost more professionally trained mm-hmm. people or people who have done this for decades and mm-hmm. won awards for it, like. She's not going over the top to try
2: to win an Oscar with this. It's just like, oh, wow, look at this devastated mother. Also, if we're going into feminism here, so one of the last things she says in this scene is, you know, so now what? I'm useless because I'm not a mother anymore. What is my role Mm -hmm. in life? And Mm -hmm. that's why her her final scene where she puts on the glasses, she looks up at the sky and she smiles is so cathartic to me because again, Mm -hmm we have been told for centuries that the woman's role is to have babies and produce they're a baby factor that's all they are and yep. i love that this film that this character feels this and comes out of it like obviously yeah. yes it sucks her daughter is still dead but there's hope for her it's not it, her life isn't over because she's not a mother anymore and i just found that very touching
3: And I think like one thing I remember, I had a friend who died uh, when I was, when we were in high school and I remember being in church and the pastor talking about like, there is no term for like when a parent loses the child, you know, like you're there, there is no word for that because it's, it's not a natural thing. You don't, you aren't supposed to contemplate it. So it's like, you're living through something that should not be real, that should not exist because it's just so cruel. Mm Mm-hmm. That you your body, your mind, cannot connect all those things together, and I thought that like putting it on the glasses is this moment of like catharsis, but also like reclaiming a little bit of her daughter for herself,
0: yeah and uh. and
3: reclaiming like a bit of herself back because she has to have a identity that's not just mom,
2: yeah, she's gonna have to move on,
3: yeah, when
2: well, she's a single mother too or she so she was a single mother, and now she's a single right. woman, um yeah. but. Yeah yeah oh yeah oh.
3: and it's like that's not i think about that just singing out loud i'm like imagine like being like she's so young it's like you're no longer a young mother you're not a young divorcee mm-hmm. it's like yep. you had a child and you're so young people will think oh like yeah it's like no my daughter just died as a teenager like this isn't very like even talking about it, i'm like that's so intense that's, a, that's yeah. such a strange thing reality to be living in day Ooh.
2: after day see another really good moment too is when they're singing our lips are sealed and they finish the song and, and she's yeah. like keep singing and they're like we we did finish the song like that yeah. it's such a quiet soft moment but i can't believe she went to work that day i mean honestly like you take no. a month <laughs> off
3: yeah i would like i find any excuse not to work so i would have been like <laughs> i think i have done nothing wrong you can't say anything to me yeah
0: <laughs> oh boy of oh, course
3: but
2: yeah um so that is knives and skin that is knives. And I, I mean, I love the unconventional episodes, Joe, because I I love our straightforward plots because it's easy to follow through. But honestly, I don't know how we could have done that with this movie. And I feel like no. we, we bounced around. So if you didn't watch the movie, listeners, um, sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we Maybe met well. got a well. taste for what it was
2: like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, I'm sure listening to this is exactly how the movie plays in real time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> honestly i feel like we i can say we definitely gave a more streamlined version than they could have gotten anywhere else got
2: <laughs> yes oh man well okay well any final thoughts on knives and scam before we close out uh princess as the guest of honor you are um, uh, the floor is yours
3: thank you i mean honestly i just felt very like thrilled like it was very thrilling watching this i was watching it like during like a very busy day but i just found myself really compelled by it and it definitely is a film that i want to revisit because i feel like one time is just not enough like i need to <laughs> i need to see more of this and sort of just keep unpacking it. it definitely makes me want to check out the rest of her her work because it's clearly a very thoughtful and creative director
2: <laughs> yeah um i i'm inclined to i mean when i finished this last night i I I don't know how I felt to be honest. So I made sure to rewatch it again today. <laughs> um again, knowing all, what all the pieces were, knowing what I was getting into, this worked for me more in a second watch and I do think that if I watched it again after this conversation, I would probably like it a lot more. Um it's right. it is definitely a vibe. It is not a movie that is holding your hand. Uh, but it's a very pretty movie, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of really, really good performances and interesting insights here that I, I, yeah, I don't think it's possible to get on one or clearly even two viewings. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, sure. And having had the luxury of seeing it and then having a couple of years in between and then coming back to it, but still knowing and remembering what it was, it definitely benefits from all of this. But I will say, as I think I said midway through the episode, this is a film that benefits from being able to talk about it with people. Like, it's an emotional film, it is a vibe, it's an atmosphere, it's musical. In a lot of ways this film doesn't want to hold you by the hand it doesn't want to talk down to you it just wants you to like figure it out on your own terms and i think that's something that's really respectable in a day and age where as you said princess films really just want to say like don't worry we will explain everything to you and if not there will be a video about the end of it on youtube in five minutes
2: (laughs) (laughs) ending explained
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. so yeah i admire and respect this film It's not a film that I'm going to watch all the time, but I am very curious to see how listeners are going to respond to this, particularly if they've either listened to this and now they're going to check it out based on the conversation, or if they kind of went into it being like, "Ooh, I'm going to get a dead girl mystery movie. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not. Yeah,
3: definitely. Like, I truly enjoyed this and I feel really glad that I got to watch it and then talk to somebody about it because I do. I'm one of those people I do love talking about movies as soon as i watch them so this definitely oh, yeah. uh <laughs> hit for me
2: so yeah that's knives and skin and before we announce what we're covering next week uh princess first of all thank you for joining us for the show and uh yeah. let everyone know where can they find you on social media
3: thank you so much for having me this has been such a pleasure like i i'm gonna download that patreon because i want to hear you guys
0: <laughs> Tara, rip Martin, into Rebecca.
3: Rebecca. yeah while i drink <laughs> red wine um
0: well, we also have episodes on Gremlins 2 and the Northmen, which were other things you mentioned. So.
3: I, I'm, I'm going to go through, but I listened to a few episodes and I'm just like, oh, okay, I fit in really well. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was so perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, for anyone looking to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Weeks Princess, W-E-E-K-E-S. I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about pop culture. I actually have a video coming out about the um, stepford wives and don't worry darling so that'll be Ooh. I talk about both stepford wives cuz I watched the 04 Ooh. version and I'm just like hey oh no yeah.
2: oh, that movie's very funny but not good
3: <laughs> it's right. it was it was an experience but <laughs> yeah I, and I'm and I'm princess weeks basically on all other forms of social media and just you know really thrilled to be here like honestly had a great time thank you so much for having me
2: well thank oh, you so nice much day. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers, or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. But if you want to show us some love, you uh, and you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Review, review, review. Write things about us that are nice yeah we love written stuff we love written stuff uh i love it when i go and i see like oh we have a new review but it's like a rating and i can't tell which one it is um <laughs> <laughs> is it a one star or is it a five star um but if you want to give us money uh you can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horror so yeah we are uh in november kicking off the month so we've got episodes discussing the morals and ethics of true crime uh, horror satire, The Menu, and we're playing a bit of catch-up with episodes on Barbarian and Smile, since we weren't able to cover them when they actually hit theaters, because there was too much shit that was coming out. Uh, And we've also got an audio commentary on the sequel that's better than the original, The Collection, which will be celebrating its 10th anniversary this month. Joe, what are we talking about next week? Well,
0: as you said, we're in November, but November has five weeks, Trace, so we're going to go into our second of five episodes, and uh, we're really going to pivot hard. So we talked about the secret lives of teenage girls this week, and next week we're going to get super fucking masculine because we're flying to <laughs> space with Casper Van in our second Paul Verhoeven film in like a couple of weeks, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about the 25th anniversary
2: of Starship Troopers. Oh, man, I really hope we're going to be introducing some people to this that have never seen it before, y'all, because this movie is wild. <laughs> oh my god! Well, you know what, Trace? If we do, then we'll have signed them up to do their part. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, until next week's very satirical and gory as hell treat, Mm -hmm. we can cross out Knives and Skin. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers.